Okay, so we're uh, we're moving through our study of the minor prophets this week. We're I, I've got this listed as as weeks, even though we may spend a couple of weeks on some of these longer minor prophets. But week four is Jonah, so we see there his hand sticking out of the mouth of the fish with the prophetic staff there. Stefana's pointing to it right now. So, uh, so Jonah, we don't know a lot about Jonah. Um, we're told that he's the son of uh, uh, Amittai, and uh, that's, we know he's probably from Galilee, so the same region or part of Israel that Jesus comes from. Um, he's, he's from a place, Gath Hefer is a place that's a few miles from Nazareth. So real close to Jesus's hometown. All right. So like, like always, we have a little bit of background information just to, just to set the context for the story of Jonah. We anticipate that most of us are pretty familiar with the book. And of course, some of you, I'm sure, I hope, read through it this week. But um, some background issues. So probably it was written sometime between uh, 800 and 750 BC. Uh, this is, as you see there, I've written a time of Assyrian weakness. As we told you before, there, when we were talking about um, about Joel, there was a time when Assyria, while it was the uh, the largest uh, superpower of its day, it did have a time where it had um, conquered a lot of uh, a lot of its neighbors, and then it went into a time of decline before again rising uh, to to greater power. Um, and this is written probably in a time of weakness, as you, as I've written there. It's probably during the reign of Assur Dan, and it's actually Assur Dan the third whose reign was sometime around 7, uh, 770 BC, 775 BC to about 750 BC. Um, so most scholars think it's around this time. Uh, at this time, Assyria was involved in a, uh, a protracted engagement with some uh, mountainous peoples in the uh, Urartu uh, region north of Assyria. Um, I don't know where that is really, so don't think like, you know, I've never heard of that. Well, neither had I. Um, but uh, this, this was a, a, a group of people that they were having a lot of trouble with who had pushed back on the Assyrian um, uh, territory and had actually moved the border back towards Nineveh within 100 miles of Nineveh. So that gives you a sense of the political climate at the time. Uh, I think Stefano was going to talk about the next line there about the natural phenomena. Uh, well, under the reign of this guy, Asher Dan, um, there were, uh, there is um, recorded that there were some omens of disaster that what they would have considered omens of disaster, like for example, um, a, solar, a full solar eclipse in 763 BC. So that was an ominous portent for them because when a solar eclipse happens, a lot of times that's tied in with the fate of the ruler. And so um, a solar eclipse could mean, you know, the king's going to be overthrown or somebody's going to, you know, take over the kingdom or, or something like that. 
Um, there were earthquakes recorded and famines. There were riots and uprisings. And so it was uh, a really bad time for them. And so in some sense, um, I feel like this can kind of explain why um, somebody like Jonah coming on the scene, um, somebody that they'd never seen before, um, who says, you know, you're going to be destroyed. And all of a sudden they listen to him. You know, I mean, otherwise it's kind of inexplicable, but this was a period of weakness um, and a time of um, ill omens for um, these Syrian people. So they were, you know, kind of superstitious, um, polytheistic, uh, didn't want to make the gods angry. And so um, this was just a a time of, of great struggle for them. So just to, again, to context, put it in context for, in terms of biblical history then, uh, the northern kingdom, Israel, had been made a vassal state of Assyria in, uh, in 841. So it had been a vassal, had a vassal relationship with Assyria where they were paying tribute um, and then, you know, rebelling and then paying tribute again and so forth for some time uh, before this. But this was still before the Assyrians come in and actually wipe out uh, the Northern Kingdom and carry all the people into captivity um, by about 25 years. Okay, now Stefan wants to say something about our next slide before we start it. We're going to show a couple of videos uh, from YouTube talking about, um, I'll let her talk. (laughs) (laughs) I just wanted to apprise you of what's coming because to me it's kind of shocking. So um, not to, we don't want to, you know, necessarily jump to the end before we begin, but, you know, the story of Jonah sort of leaves you hanging a little bit, and we just wanted <coughs> you to know that, um, you know, sort of the, the end of the story, so to speak. So Jonah's tomb, even though Jonah is from Galilee, as John said, his tomb is actually still in Nineveh. And if you don't know where Nineveh is, it's in Iraq, and it's the city of Mosul in Iraq, right on the river. Um, and so, you know, <laughs> the, the very city that Jonah went to preach against is the city that houses his, um, his tomb, um, where his tomb is, um, it's kind of a complex where there's a mosque and, um, uh, there was a, a Christian church. Uh, so this site actually is, um, a site of, of devotion and pilgrimage for Jews, Muslims, and Christians, so it's it's something that they uh, that they shared in common. And by the way, Jonah is the only um, prophet of the minor prophets who appears in the Quran. He's not the only prophet from the Old Testament who appears in the Quran, because um, Daniel appears as well, and and I think a couple others, Jeremiah, I believe. Um, but Jonah appears in the Quran. His story is told like in a, in a few verses. Um, unfortunately, you can go now. You can you can turn it. Um, so this is Jonah's tomb. In, um, in 2014, ISIS moved into Mosul, and they decided that, you know, the ancient Nineveh uh, was going to be the capital of their caliphate. But before they could, you know, sort of uh, um, take dominance there, they decided they needed to clean up the place. Uh, they needed to clean up Nineveh. And so what that meant was that they went and cleaned house of everything that they thought tended towards idolatry. And the tomb of Jonah is one place that suffered destruction. And um, we have a little video clip um, to show you. So this is the before, and um, hopefully the, the video will work. So don't be shocked. 
Yeah. So there it goes. So ISIS destroyed a number of artifacts from the Assyrian age in the, uh, in the museum of Mosul um, as well there, one of, the, one of the largest museums. So I'm just going to skip to the next video. The next video... You can see these on YouTube. Right, right. You can, so this next video tells a little bit about the Assyrian uh, Empire and the Assyrians, because underneath, as you'll, you'll hear in the video, underneath Jonah's tomb was an Assyrian palace. So even though they blew up the mosque and they blew up the, uh, the Christian church that was there and, uh, and ostensibly, you know, presumably destroyed Jonah's tomb, Underneath all of that, there was also still archaeological, uh, you know, items to be discovered that tell us something about the Assyrians. And so that's what this so, next video is. So this is. is the after. Obviously, you see all the rubble there in front of what was the facade of, um, like, the entrance to that complex. So um, that's why we wanted to show you what happened to it, because this clip presumes that you know it's been blown up. Okay. So you can imagine when uh, God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, why he might not want to go, right? Um, do you want me to start going through this? Yeah, sure. So God calls Jonah, um, we look in the book, uh, verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh. So get up and go. This is the prophetic call. This is how he would said to Elijah, to Elisha, get up and go to wherever God sends, okay? So Jonah is... Uh, um, squarely in the prophetic tradition, get up and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, this word evil is going to be used in a number of places through the book of Jonah, and it's the word Ra. And so I'll, I'll just tell you that so you know um, ahead of time, and then we'll kind of refer to that, I think, as we go along. So um, where, from where Jonah was, Nineveh was to the east. And the text says, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. And this word Tarshish, it could be a city named Tarshish or Tartessos or something like that, um, which we know that there is one in Spain. So that's to the west. It also means the open waters. So instead of going to Nineveh east, which would be inland, Jonah goes exactly the other direction to the open waters um, out to the west. And the text says twice that he uh, was going to flee from the presence of the Lord. He is running away from God. He went down to Joppa, which is not um, Israelite territory. <coughs> so Joppa is a seaport. And um, uh, we know from the story that the sailors on the ship are not um, Hebrew. They don't believe in Yahweh. So in, in some sense... Um, it seems like Jonah is running away from the Lord. He's going exactly in the opposite direction. God tells him to go. He wants to um, kind of go where he's anonymous, where nobody knows him. Nobody can recognize him. And maybe he can get away from God, which is super foolish, right? So, um, uh, but God catches up with him, obviously. Yes. One, one interesting thing. So under like Jonah's disobedience. So as Stefano said, he flees from the presence of God. Um, there are a couple of interesting things that like ideas or themes that come up throughout the book. And one of them is Jonah in the presence of God and Jonah in death. And so in, in 
chapter one, Jonah tries to flee the presence of God. Later in chapter two, when he's about to die or he does die, we'll talk about that in a moment. But either way, it, part of that is described as he's, he's uh, departing from the presence of God, um, which is a scary thing for Jonah, right? It, it leads to fear and, uh, well, terror. And, and yet, and, and, you know, and he's afraid of death. And then later at the end of the book, as you know, he says, it'd be better if I was dead. So his experience in, in some ways doesn't really um, change him the way it should have. In, in one sense, it does, because he does repent of his initial disobedience. But in another sense, it doesn't, because he still speaks rather flippantly about life and death and, um, and his own desires with, with regard to those things. Um, anyway, that's just a side note, something to think about as we, you know, as you look at the book. So God catches up to Jonah, obviously, or Jonah never actually gets away from God, of course. And um, as we move into verse four and following, where we're talking about the storm, and we read about the storm, um, we see something here that could be categorized under um, God's sovereignty over creation, over the whole natural order. And so we see a number of times in the book of Jonah that God um, acts purposefully um, within the natural order. So this is the first time here. Um, the text, which is very picturesque, very, it's very colorful, um, and it's supposed to kind of provoke your imagination. So it's, it's on purpose. This is why it's a great kid story. Well, it's a good story. <laughs> um, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. I mean, he, he threw a wind onto the sea. A mighty tempest was there so that the ship threatened to break up. Um, it, it literally says the ship thought it was going to fall apart. Um, the sailors were afraid, each cried out to his own God. So everybody has kind of a personal God that they um, are devoted to. And these sailors are each crying out to their own God who, you know, they're like their, their patron, basically. Um, they try to lighten the load. So, you know, God threw a storm. Um, the sailors are throwing the cargo out. Um, Jonah is nowhere to be seen, you know, while this whole panic is going on up at the top, he had gone down into the deep part of the ship to the inner part of the ship and laying down and he was out cold and, and nothing was going to wake him up. Um, eventually, I guess, as they were going into the hold and pulling out cargo and throwing it overboard, um, they came up upon him sleeping and the captain shakes him awake and says, Hey, you call out to your God too. Maybe the God will give a thought to us and we may not perish. They didn't want to die, right? Um, and, uh, you know, these pagans are thinking, well, how are we going to find out um, why this storm is going on? So these people along the coast, these are sea people. These are Phoenicians. They know how to sail a ship right? They've seen bad conditions on the sea before, but this is something that they've never seen before. And they're thinking uh, something else, something more is going on here. This is not just a, a, a usual storm. And so they cast lots. Um, uh, so it says, so that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So that's the word raw again, which can also mean a disaster. So it has kind of a, a dual meaning. So on whose account? So they cast lots. So do you want to talk about lots? You don't? No. Okay. <laughs> so they cast lots. 
Um, and the lots, uh, I think guided by the Lord, um, the lot fell on Jonah, of course. And so now, you know, the, how, the way we say like the, the gig is up. So Jonah has been now outed by the Lord. And, um, and then they, they question him. They turn to him, focus on him and say, um, who, who are you? And he says, I'm Hebrew. I fear the Lord. Okay. So each person has their own God. Now Jonah identifies his God. And he says, my God is the Lord Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So he worships the God who made the sea. And now the sea is angry. And, and the interesting thing is in, in the ancient Near East, um, in like other, uh, the, the pagan religions of the, of the, of the region, a lot of them saw the water as, uh, like the, the forces of chaos and, uh, the God, you know, gods, um, are those who try and battle against chaos or keep it at bay, um, and struggle with that. And of course, here, Jonah sort of astounds them when he says, well, I worship the, the one God, the, the true God who created the sea. So it's not a contrary force like in many of the Canaanite religions or an evil power. It's, uh, it's actually um, a part of the creation that God himself is sovereign over. And that's Kind of why when when Jonah tells them, well, throw me overboard, you know, and the sea will be calm. And when it happens, the 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 pagans are astounded because what that does is it's like a it's like a proclamation that Yahweh, you know, the God of the Hebrews is is sovereign over even the sea, over the waters of chaos, uh, which threatened their lives. And um, and so I have interest. What's interesting here is the pagan response to Jonah and the pagan response to God. I I put that on the slide just because it's it's interesting that we see the pagans when when Jonah tells them to throw him overboard, they don't want to do it um, for a number of reasons. Number one, they don't want to. Uh, you know, hand him over to that evil power of chaos in their minds, right? So they don't want to do that. Number two, they have a high regard for his life because he's a human being, and uh, right, which of course is ironic because they have a higher regard for his life than Jonah has for the Ninevites later. And his own. Right? And, and even his own life in, in this regard, right? But... Uh, so they, they try to save him, and they're even afraid that his God might hold them responsible. So they sort of say, before they throw him over, Lord, please don't hold us responsible for, for this man's, blood. right, for innocent life. Like, we don't want to be murderers here. Um, so the pagans had an ethic here that, uh, in some sense, seems to be, you know, higher than Jonah's, at least with regard to his feelings towards the Ninevites, even if he was justified, as the video showed us, the Assyrians were pretty bad people. Um, And then, of course, we see their response to God when they see that God is sovereign over the seas, which, again, like Stefana mentioned, they depend on the seas being, um, let's say, calm enough to to, to do their trade to yeah to move across to do their trade then uh their response to the lord who is sovereign over the seas is to worship and offer sacrifice to him 
over against what they were doing prior, which was, you know, worshiping idols. So where it says um, in verse 16 that then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, uh, and it does use the, the name there, Yahweh, and they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and they made vows. It, it probably doesn't mean that they did it right then and there in the ship because uh, they probably weren't carrying animals. They were probably carrying um, metals that they would take, you know, across the sea to um, other ports of call where there were um, places that made, um, you know, objects or, or arms or, or whatever um, weapons out of the metal that they were that they were taking to trade. So they're probably throwing a bunch of that stuff overboard to try to save themselves. Um, so they probably didn't have animals. Um, probably once they went back to shore, um, they, uh, they offered a sacrifice there. And so then verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Very famous um, verses there. But notice the Lord appointed, just like the Lord threw a storm, he hurled a storm on the sea. Now he appoints this great fish to swallow Jonah. Okay, so any any questions or comments before we move to the next chapter? All right. Um, I saw this on Facebook, so I thought I'd just share this. It's kind of funny. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I guess someone's interpreting uh, COVID-19 as some kind of someone's uh, someone's running from someone's God. Someone's running from God. Yeah. So if it's any of us, you know, stop running. All right. Jonah 2. <clears throat> so we're, Jonah 2 is, is different from the rest of the book because one chapters 1, 3, and 4 are all narrative. Here you have kind of a, it's described as like a hymn or a psalm. Um, I would just call it a prayer. But... Um, so we have Jonah where he's praying, uh, presumably from the belly of the fish, um, but maybe maybe also from the place of the dead. The word Sheol is the Hebrew term for the place of the dead. Um, so there, there, there are some interesting questions about whether Jonah actually died or almost died, but was his life was preserved inside the the fish. Um, of course, we don't know what kind of fish it was. Um, well, so just doing a little bit of research, this is kind of fun. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but on the next slide. So the question of, could you survive like naturally? Like, is there a natural explanation? Could someone actually survive being swallowed by uh, a fish, like a, like a whale shark or a whale? So just Scientifically speaking, you, you couldn't fit down the esophagus of a whale shark, even though they open up their mouths really wide so that they could, they could get you in their mouth. They would, a whale shark would spit a human out, partly because they don't eat humans and they don't like the taste, and they spit out anything they don't like, apparently. They're, that's actually been tested by scientists who, uh, marine biologists who study this. Also, though, their esophagus is too small to actually swallow a human. So he'd have to hold him in his mouth for three days with all the water and everything, and you'd still drown. Um, could be swallowed by a sperm whale, not by a blue whale, by the way. Some people have said that. Uh, I've, I even came across a, a very famous preacher claiming that blue whales can swallow humans. Not true. They can't. So 
Welcome so, to National Geographic. I know, right? Uh, I, I like to watch a lot of documentaries. <laughs> anyway, um, a sperm whale could swallow you, but apparently they have four stomachs, kind of like a cow, and uh, but their stomachs are full of methane, so it'd be hard to breathe. And actually, they would start to digest uh, a human being. So what about this case of this guy named James Bartley who claimed, it was claimed that he was swallowed by a whale and was in, in the sperm whale for 36 hours. And they, uh, when they, the, the whaling expedition that he was on, when they caught the whale and cut it open, pulled him out, he was like in a coma, but they revived him and he, uh, he lived, uh, you know, till for the rest of his life, just fine. Um, some accounts have him as being blind. Um, but at any rate, this, this was the, the claim. It was reported in a number of newspapers in the uh, early 1900s. Um, is this true? Well, I've given you, <laughs> I've put on the slide there a, uh, a link to a, an article in a Christian scientist scientific journal, not Christian science like the, you know, the cult, but a scientific journal that Christians write for um, that uh, basically argues that when you study the, when you go back and do historical research into this, these reports, it doesn't, it doesn't hold water. For example, uh, yeah, (laughs) I didn't mean to do that with the pun, but um, Apparently, the captain of the ship said this guy didn't serve on the ship that he was claiming to serve on. It wasn't a whaling ship at all. And even though it was in the Falcon, near the Falcon Islands where this all supposedly occurred, um, like I said, it wasn't a whaling ship and they had no record of that man serving. So it probably didn't actually happen. Now, here's what's interesting. I, I, I've seen some, like I said, some pretty famous preachers make a big case about this, about how people could sw- survive in a ship, and it's been proven historically. And I would say it doesn't really matter at all, because um, if, Jonah, if Jonah's swallowed by a whale because God appointed him to be so, and once he repents or he turns back to God, God appoints the whale to vomit him out and uh, all of this. It's a supernatural occurrence. So God could certainly preserve his life supernaturally in the belly of the fish if God wanted to. However, so it doesn't really matter whether we could give a naturalistic explanation or not is my point. Um, so when when Christians go out seeking for natural explanations of supernatural events, I think that kind of detracts from the point the Bible's making anyway, right? We don't need to do that. Secondly, it's interesting that it might be the case that Jonah actually died in uh, in Jonah 2. There's a lot of discussion about this. So first of all, I have to explain Sheol, maybe for some of you who aren't familiar with it. Some some Bible translations translate it as grave. It's the grave. But um, it's actually, uh, the Hebrew word is Sheol. It's described as just the realm of the dead, where everyone goes. Some of you may have heard or may be familiar with Greek mythology. They had a notion of Hades as a general realm of the dead. Um, So the Old Testament 
describes it in Hebrew as Sheol. It's often described as a city. It has some places that are, uh, that are brighter than others, some that are gloomy. It's often described as being covered in dust, often described as having bars around the city or gates, um, like a prison. Uh, it has places that are deeper where there are pits that go deeper into the earth, described that way, kind of like Tartarus of Greek mythology, if you're familiar with that. But even in the Bible, we see it described this way. And uh, we see, um, for example, Job talks a lot about it. In fact, that's the place in the Old Testament where we have the greatest description of Sheol. It's found in Job. But look at some of the language in, jo- uh, in Jonah 2. So he talks about being in the belly of Sheol, I called out to you. That's where he says he was, in, in the belly of Sheol. Uh, he talks about being in the deep. Um, oftentimes, Sheol was conceived as being below the ocean, at the deepest part of the ocean, kind of like a, an ocean cavern. Um, so it could be the realm of the, de- the dead. In 2.4, he says, I was banished from your sight. Again, interesting, given in chapter 1, he was trying to flee from the presence of God. Now he describes it as being banished from God's sight. Uh, he says, the waters engulfed me. They threatened my life. I had seaweed wrapped around my head. Could mean around his throat, actually choking the life out of him in 2.5. In 2.6, he says, I... I sank to the foundations of the mountains. So when you think about the bottom of the ocean, he makes it sound like he's at the very bottom of the ocean. Uh, He describes it as prison bars, having prison bars. Again, in Job, Sheol is described this way. And then he says in 2.6, you raised my life from the pit, right? Again, that, that deep part of Sheol where the dead go. In 2.7, he says his life was fading away. It might mean his life was, had been taken. It might mean that it, he was on the brink of death. It's, it's unclear. Um, but in 2.8, he said, uh, so, that's, so there's a lot of language. I, I've got 2.8 there for a different reason. But it, a lot of the language then in Jonah 2 can be interpreted as Jonah actually dying and God resuscitating him when the fish uh, expels him out onto dry ground again. Why do you have two? Okay, so two eight. He says, um, he says the idolaters forsake the the hesed, the the faithful love or the loving kindness of God, depending on your translation. But it's it's a word there for God's like covenant love, God's faithful love, God's enduring love. That when people are engaged in idolatry, they are forsaking it. And then he says, he will sacrifice to God, right? It's interesting because the, the notion of forsaking the hesed of God implies, it had, it's sort of a, an, an implicit admission that God's faithful love extends to all people. Right by by engaging in idolatry by by following pagan practices, you're forsaking something that is available. Anyway, that's a sort of a preview to what's coming, of course. And here's the, the little phrase: the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out. So again, God's involvement uh, over um, over natural uh, processes. 
So um, God gives Jonah like another chance, you know, so he says, okay, get up and go to Nineveh again, the same kind of formula, that great city, call out against it, the message I tell you. And so he, he goes and we're told that Nineveh is, um, says three days journey in breadth. So basically Jonah is going to preach his message and it's going to take like a three day, you know, preaching expedition, like a um, revival services, right. Um, To, to preach to everybody. And the thing is that he went in a day's journey and he gave his message and people immediately started to believe he didn't even get through (laughs) his three day assignment. People were ready. They were ripe probably for some of the reasons that, um, that we talked about at the beginning because Assyria was in this weakened state. Um, this always sort of, you know, puzzled me, like how could this outsider come in and say, Hey, God's going to destroy you. And people immediately believe. And I think that in addition to some of the reasons that we gave at first that had to do with just Assyria itself. Um, I think that after three days that Jonah looked horrible. I think his skin must've looked horrible. And I think also that, um, those sailors, um, coming back to shore and relating their experience, I think that um, uh, that word spread. And um, the Bible doesn't tell us anything about Jonah's journey then, like to actually go to Nineveh. It's kind of a long journey. So, you know, a longer time probably elapsed and the, the rumor spread about him. So by the time that he actually got to Nineveh, you know, um, I think maybe they're might've been some, you know, some idea already about like, like who he was, you know, the story of this prophet swallowed by, uh, by a fish. So the important thing is that the people of Nineveh repented. They believed they, they repented in sackcloth, um, from the greatest to the least. Um, it got to the King. Um, and, um, he also repented. He issued a proclamation, let everyone turn from his evil way. So again, the evil, and here's kind of like with Joel, who knows, who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so we may not perish. And that word turn, different versions of that word turn are the same word for repent. So they might turn and God might turn. Okay, that's kind of the impact of the language. And so that's what happens in verse 10. Um, they turn from their evil and God turned from the evil that he had planned. That's how the wording goes. Well, the, yeah, the, the evil or the calamity that, that was going to come upon them, the destruction, right? Um, interesting. I just wanted to make sure I explained this, what, what the AMN is there. So when it says the Ninevites believed, the word, it's, it's the same root word for amen, right? So in Hebrew, it's, it's uh, you know, like all of, Anyway, amen, like amen. Okay, so in, in chapter four, then, uh, really the crux of the story, because this is when uh, God doesn't destroy the city, and Jonah gets mad uh, uh, about this. You know, he's up there on the, on the hilltop. He's got his booth made. This vine is there nicely growing over, creating some shade, and then suddenly... Uh, a very dry, powerful wind comes in. It dries up the the vine, and you know the worm eats the vine, and the whole thing dries up and blows away. And he he just wants to die. Um, so what does that mean? I mean, it, obviously Jonah's angry uh, to the point of death, 
And uh, he says it would be better for me to be dead, which is, again, ironic, given the fact that in chapter two, he was, you know, he was driven to repentance because of at least impending death, if not actual death. Um, so, um, so what's interesting is he, he, his attitude seems like he fails to, to recognize and appreciate what God has already done for him in preserving him in the midst of the belly of the fish or in the midst of, you know, if he, if he really did die. I mean, if you think about that, if he died and was resuscitated back to life, right? And notice I didn't use the word resurrection. I'll, you know, I'd say because it's, it's not the same as Jesus who was resurrected into glory, into a glorified body, uh, right? Jonah comes back in a, in a pretty, you know, in, in the same body he has. So he's resuscitated. Well, if that, if that occurs, he, again, he doesn't even appreciate what he's had. Um, and so we see contrasted, right? His hatred of the Ninevites, um, Versus, of course, God's love and God's compassion for them. Uh, his wrath versus God's compassion. Let's just go to the next one, Sign of Jonah. Okay, so we thought it's, it's important to talk about this, right? So the sign of Jonah, Jonah in the New Testament, right? So we have uh, this uh, slide. I'm going to advance to the next one, and I'll come back in just a second. But I just want to show you I have some similarities between Jonah and Jesus and some differences between Jonah and Jesus. And then we'll, we'll close with some themes. So the sign of Jonah, Jesus talks about Jonah in the new Testament, right? Go ahead, Swami. You're going to read. Sure. Um, uh, Jesus said, an, uh, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Then men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And th this kind of reminds me also of the concept of the day of the Lord. You know, on that day, that day of judgment, the generation that Jesus is speaking to, that's an unbelieving generation, is going to fare worse than these horrible people um, in Nineveh um, who actually believed and repented at that time. It doesn't mean they converted, but they did repent at the preaching of God's message. This is this is similar to Jesus saying, "Woe to Bethsaida and Chorazin," That's because right. you know it. The the people the people of Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented if they had seen what you see, but you're not. You know the same kind of language uh, and hyperbole of Jesus. Um, well, okay. So Jonah, we could say is, is like a, a like a, a prefiguring of Christ in some ways. What we, we use the word, scholars will use the word type, like a type of Christ in some ways, but in other ways he's not. And so we don't want to make too much of it. Right. But, uh, so what are the similarities? Notice I wrote there, they both are found sleeping in the belly of a boat during a storm. Right? And people are astounded that they're able to sleep. Um, both of them calm a storm in one way or another, right? Uh, Jonah, by being thrown in uh, and judged, Jesus, because of his sovereignty over the storm, both descend to Sheol, maybe, maybe. Uh, Jesus, in Acts 2, we're told, descended into Sheol and proclaimed his victory over death there uh, to the souls that were there. Um, 
and maybe Jonah also descended to Sheol. Uh, if Jonah did die, then there's another comparison. Both deaths sac- are sacrificial in a certain sense because Jonah dies in the place of all those uh, men on the ship, and Jesus, of course, dies for us. And people believe in God as a result of what happens with the death. Both come out of Sheol, possibly, again, um, and their, uh, their coming back to life lead, uh, led to significant change of heart in others, right? Whether we're talking about the, the pagans uh, turning to the Lord and making vows to him, or we're talking about, of course, Christians and even, even people like Paul, uh, right, seeing the resurrected Jesus. Now, again, we don't want to make too much of these similarities because there are some significant differences as well. Let me highlight those real quick. So, obviously, Jonah is not as faithful as Jesus. Jesus embraces God's will even when it's very difficult, i.e. Garden of Gethsemane. Jonah runs away from God's will. Jonah hates the Ninevites and resents God's grace. Jesus loves the unloved, and he is an incarnation of God's grace. Yeah, Jonah would not have sung that song that David chose for us. Yeah, oh, yeah, he loves you. Yeah, he'd just say, oh, he loves me. And Not so much you. Yeah, (laughs) me and Israel, that's all. Jonah calms the storm with his life. Jesus calms the storm. Again, I already said this, but by this, by his, by virtue of his being the son of God, right? Um, Jonah receives a word from God. Jesus is the word of God. Uh, and then Jonah comes off looking like a Pharisee. And of course, Jesus is critical of the Pharisees. And when I say he comes off looking like a Pharisee, I mean, he's, he's expecting, you know, he, he wants God's judgment on the, on the nations, and he presumes God's grace for Israel, kind of like the Pharisees. It's like uh, a misunderstanding of the Abrahamic covenant, right? In other words, he thinks, well, because God made this covenant with Israel through Abraham, we have a special status over and above all the other people, and he wants to lord it over them. That's Jonah's attitude, kind of like the Pharisees in Jesus' own day. Jesus is very critical of that, as he obviously should be. And Jonah, you know, Jonah is just, he's resentful of God's compassion. Um, That's, and he says as much very honestly um, in, uh, in the beginning of chapter four. And, and when he does that, he, he recites basically the little formula um, of God's self-identification that he gave to Moses that we saw in Joel uh, last time. You are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Now, Jonah doesn't like that, though, for someone else, only for him. Now, again, Sven and I have always made a big deal about this, but because I think it's, it's important. Too often we hear people say, oh, the God of the Old Testament, God of wrath, God, you know, he's a mean-spirited God, and things like that. And some atheists have, used, have tried to say, use that as an argument against uh, the Bible, right? But, but truly, the Bible presents God in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it presents God as gracious and loving and slow to anger and merciful. And, and this is why I said, you know, the idolaters are rejecting the hesed, the, the loving kindness of God that is actually available to them. So what do we see in Jonah? What is the story of Jonah? What themes do we see? Well, we see God's love for all people, which 
subsumed under that is God's plan for the creation. As we mentioned that very first week, and we've said again, over and over again, in, in creating and in uh, making man in his image and in blessing them, God had a plan for humanity. And God's covenant with Abraham was to fulfill that plan for the creation and for humanity by calling a people to, to be set apart to show the rest of humanity how to live godly lives. Jonah's going there hoping destruction rather than going there and sort of hoping to, to see repentance as a fulfillment of uh, some of that Abrahamic blessing. Um, so we see that theme coming out, even though it's not explicitly mentioned. Were you say something? Secondly, no, I was so, going to say, oh, jump to there. Okay, so yeah, secondly, God's sovereignty over random events like the, the throwing of the dice or the casting of lots, right? God is sovereign even over that. Now, how God is sovereign over that, we could talk about another time. I think there are various ways of understanding that, but God is sovereign over them no matter how we understand it. God is sovereign over the creation. Obviously, he appoints the fish. He sends the, he sends the winds and the vine and the waters and, and the worm and all of that. Um, but also, God is sovereign over free humans, uh, right? Whether we're talking about Jonah, who's free. He's free to run, but God is going to have what God wants done, done. He's not going to force Jonah against his will, but he knows how Jonah is going to respond, and he ensures that the people respond in the way he has ordained. Um, third, and, and I think this is, of course, the most important thing, because this is what we see uh, as the running theme of the Bible, and that is God's holiness, judgment, wrath, mercy, and grace. Notice, and, and all of those are unified in God. They're not at odds in God. They're not fighting with one another in God. They are perfectly manifested and revealed in God because they're all part of his nature. All right. Well, Chris, should, should we close with prayer or would you like to? No, I'd be, I'd be glad for you guys to feel free to thank you. Good study. Thank you. Well, let's pray our heavenly father. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the story of Jonah as a reminder of your grace, your mercy, and your love for all people. May we uh, share that love uh, with others and uh, also warn uh others and ourselves of uh, your holiness and your wrath when appropriate. But Lord, we thank you for your grace shown through Christ, and we pray that uh, we would be a, uh, uh, a pillar of uh, and, a, and a city on a hill where we could show people your grace and your love every day and proclaim it boldly. We pray your blessings on our church. We pray that you would watch over uh, all of our membership Keep us safe in this time of crisis. Help us to reflect on your love and your grace and on what you have for each of us each day. We pray that you'd give us ears to hear your voice and eyes to see your glory. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.